The retail picture is getting clearer, and one major company is clearly struggling. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the present bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Good to see you both. Hey. We got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll talk pets and pet retail with Chewy CEO Sumit Singh. And as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the biggest retailer. Walmart's same store sales in the third quarter rose more than 8%. Profits and revenue were higher than expected. And Emily shares a Walmart. Up 5% this week. Yeah, that's big for Walmart. Walmart's not used to stock price movement like that. And it's a good thing. They certainly needed it. It all comes down to what Walmart specializes in, which for them is success in things like non discretionary purchases. If you're going to Walmart, there's a good chance that you're going there to buy something that is a necessity in your life, whether it be food or personal care products. And that certainly showed in the quarter. It also helps that Walmart has that perception of being an affordable place to shop with the low lowest prices on many non-discretionary goods, which meant that as consumers felt their pocketbooks be stretched in the most recent couple of quarters, they're headed to Walmart more often, as opposed to other places that may have higher prices. As you mentioned, sales rose 9% over $150 billion in the quarter. Earnings also rose on an adjusted basis. Now, there was a $3 billion opioid settlement, There was that, um, which did weigh on the non-adjusted profits, but the market's overlooking that, um, hopefully putting that in the rear of your mirror and just focusing on where Walmart is doing best, which is understanding where their consumers are and meeting them there. You go back in time a ways, and there were people wondering about Walmart's push into groceries. You know, Does this make sense? Can they build this at scale? Because that has been so key to Walmart's success. You look at the fact that groceries now account for more than half of their revenue, I'd say it's worked out. Yeah, and you can also include Sam's Club and the success of Sam's Club in there because if you look at the quarterly results, Sam's Club actually had uh, the best performing results from Walmart in the most recent quarter. I think their sales rose nearly 13%. That's compared to a 7% and an 8.5% rise for both Walmart International and Walmart US. So, again, strong performance across the entire company, but certainly being buoyed by things like groceries. The big home improvement retailers reported this week. Third quarter results for both Home Depot and Lowe's were higher than expected, but shares of both were basically flat for the week. Uh, Jason, we're fans of both these companies. I don't think either one of us thinks that long term um, they're in any kind of trouble. It is interesting to me, though, that not only are both these stocks down in 2022, they are trailing the market, which is down for the year. Yeah, and I think part of that is both of these businesses are making investments in supply chain infrastructure in order to help down the road. And so, you know, these are costs that are weighing, I think, on margins a little bit here in the near term. I wouldn't read too much into that, though. When you look at both businesses, I mean, Home Depot, another really nice quarter from what is a very important company in the home improvement market. And one thing that stood out to me on the call, Chris, is the EVP of merchandising, Jeff Kinnaird, that I quote, we're excited about the holiday season. I mean, that's that's encouraging. I mean, home home improvement. That's that's kind of interesting. We want to hear that. Yes, we do. Um, 
The numbers were strong. Sales, $38.9 billion for the quarter. That was up 5.6% from a year ago. Comp sales up 4.3%, and comp sales in the U.S. up 4.5%. Earnings per share up 8.2%. And when you look at ticket versus transactions during the quarter, comp average ticket grew 8.8%. The transactions themselves fell 4.4%. Not terribly surprising. But it was also encouraging to see the big ticket comp transactions, those over $1,000 up 10.1% compared to the same quarter a year ago. So, so people are spending some money there. And when you look at Lowe's, a lot of the same, right? Maybe a little bit of a slower growth rate there, but revenue of $23.5 billion was up 2.4%. Comps up 2.2%, and U.S. comps up 3%. Ultimately, though, earnings per share growth here, 20%, as Marvin Ellison just continues to do a wonderful job in maximizing efficiencies here and really bringing things down to the bottom line. You're skeptical, Emily. Yeah, you saw me rolling my I eyes. Did. <laughs> no, I, I don't want to. This is a, a well-performing business. Both of these businesses have been incredible investments over the past five, ten years. But I will say, I think Lowe's in particular has really benefited from just a secular shift in demand for their products. And I do worry about how management is going to be dynamic when that inevitably changes in the future. They've had an incredible past couple of years, but I think Home Depot has a longer track record of expertise of executional expertise that is likely going to outshine Lowe's long-term. And I think that includes reputations with, with high-value contractors and professionals. I could totally be wrong. The expectations for Lowe's is lower than Home Depot, but I can't help but, I don't know, I don't want to give Elvison too many pats on the back before he's really had a chance to prove himself. The expectations may be lower. The share count at Lowe's also lower. <laughs> well, and I'm glad that you said that, Emily, because I think you are exactly right. I mean, when you look at these two businesses, Home Depot is clearly the better business and the better performer. When you look at the way these shares have performed over the last five and ten years, though, it's it's impressive. I think most investors would guess that Home Depot has outperformed. It clearly is the other way around. Over five and ten years, Lowe's has outperformed rather significantly. But it's not really because the businesses, as Ron would say, firing on all cylinders. I mean, it's doing well, but the share repurchases with Lowe's have had a, a material impact on, on what's been going on here. And, and when you just go back over the last ten years, Lowe's share account, and, and so this predates Ellison, but Ellison accelerated this capital return program. Lowe's share count is down 49%. And over that same stretch of time, Home Depot only down 33%. So those are good numbers either way. Yeah, only. <laughs> but I think it really does help explain Lowe's outperformance to an extent. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. You need to keep an eye on this business going forward to see what kind of growth rates are are reasonable to expect from a Lowe's versus a Home Depot. I own Home Depot, I don't own Lowe's. This is kind of making me wonder if I don't need to consider adding Lowe's. I got kind of like a MasterCard Visa vibe going right. on here. Maybe it's just wise to own both, but I think you really keyed in on one of my concerns right there. Target's third quarter profits fell 50%, and the company lowered guidance for the holiday quarter. Shares of Target down 6% this week. Emily, let's face it, it's been a tough year for retailers, but it kind of seems like we are getting more evidence that some of Target's problems are self-inflicted. Yeah, ouch. This is a bad quarter for Target. They needed a win, too, because this is the second quarter in a row that the market has hammered their results, in large part due to what many perceive to be an ineffective use of inventory. The results themselves actually weren't that 
bad at face value. Their comps increased nearly 3%. That's on top of a nearly 13% compared to last year. Traffic was up more than 1%. Ticket sales were up more than 1%. So it wasn't like Target is just dead in the water, but management provided some commentary around the demand trends that really scared investors. In particular, what happened in October. Sales and comps suddenly fell off. People became a lot more concerned about the money they were spending, all tying into this fear over consumers and discretionary spending headed into the holiday season. So they had to do some massive discounting to move inventory. And as you mentioned, Chris, that's what we saw on the bottom line. That's the reason why their profits were cut nearly in half, is because they were essentially getting hit on their margins to move inventory. Um, now, if I were a target shareholder, I wouldn't be too concerned. It does seem like a lot of this is related to the general economy. The question I'd be asking myself is, is this executional weakness or economic weakness? And if sales are declining because the economy is not here or consumers are just spending more money on groceries like at Walmart versus clothes at Target, I'm less worried about that. But I do want to ensure that Target is maintaining its merchandising power. So I think that if there's one person to know at Target, it's Jill Sando. She's a chief merchandising officer. She's been with the company since 1997, but is relatively new to the CMO role, having only owned that position for about a year. Before that, she was the CMO of Owned Brands, which have been a great spot for Target, again, in that role for about a year. So a lot of pressure on Jill Sando to actually perform and execute in merchandising. The good news is this quarter, it seems that they're growing their unit power in each of the five categories that they own. So not all dead in the water, but certainly a weak quarter. Next week is Black Friday, and there are years where we go into the holiday retail season with a, a pretty clear picture, um, uh, almost like most, if not all, retailers are singing from the same uh, page in the songbook. Um, I feel like that this is not that year. I don't know about you, but like, how how are you guys feeling as investors heading into the holiday retail season? Because I I. I can't think of the last time I was this uncertain about how it's going to play out for retailers. I'm actually cautiously optimistic. Now, I don't think it'll be great things for businesses because, like we saw with Target, there's going to be a lot of discounting happening, and that could definitely hurt margins for a lot of these retailers. But they're in a position where they need to move inventory and they need consumers to spend money. So I'm really looking at Black Friday and Cyber Monday. I think those sales will give us a great first look at what the full holiday season could look like. But if there's enough discounting, I think that will catalyze consumers to spend more money than they may otherwise have spent. So that's why I have this cautious optimism, you could say. Yeah, I like that cautious optimism because there, there is the opportunity to exceed expectations here, right? If you look at uh, some of the projections, I mean, National Retail Federation uh, noted recently that they are calling for holiday sales this year to rise between 6 and 8% from last year. Uh, if you go back to 2020, those sales were up 8.2%. Uh, go to 2021, uh, they were up 13.5%. So it feels like there is some caution out there, understandably so. We heard that on, on, on calls from companies like Etsy, for example. Uh, but by the same token, you know, it's kind of an expectations game too. And if, and if we see those National Retail Federation expectations uh, conservative after all after all said and done, then I think you got to feel pretty good about that. The Federation's track record in terms of <laughs> holiday retail predictions is pretty solid. They so. know they know a couple of things. <laughs> this week we found out what stock Warren Buffett has been buying. Details after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money.
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. William Sonoma posted record results for the third quarter, but shares of the home and kitchen retailer fell 8% on Friday after William Sonoma's management team pulled guidance through 2024. Jason, <laughs> that is a level of uncertainty I was not expecting from William Sonoma. Well, yeah, but remember too, they were reporting fiscal 23 third quarter, so so it's it's a little bit closer, I think. This this, this guidance that they yanked is a little bit closer than it sounds, perhaps. Um, but, but I mean, I understand the market's trepidation toward a company like this in this environment, right? The stock is valued today at less than 10 times full-year earnings projections. I mean, it's really more like seven, which is kind of fascinating because this is a pretty strong, strong collection of brands. But I think if you flip it around where economic conditions have recovered, whenever that may be, this is probably a bit more of a glass half full view on this company. The numbers, I think, were fairly encouraging. Revenue just shy of $2.2 billion was up 7% from a year ago, and the earnings per share up 12%. Gross margin feeling some pressure, 41.5%. That was down 220 basis points from a year ago. Primarily due to shipping and freight, we're just seeing that that playing playing out across the board. But they still grew operating income two percent and very strong performance on the pottery barn side. And while it's still a small part of the business today, their business to business, their B two B side that they're making investments here that's starting to gain some traction. It's still really small, but it grew seventeen percent, and it represents a really big market opportunity as they start selling to various commercial and hospitality hospitality companies. Let's think about like hotels and and stuff like that. But I think it does go back to what you said there at the top, pulling that guidance for this coming fiscal year. That's just enough uncertainty, I think, for the market to kind of want to. Hold out and see how things play out for this one. Yeah, it always reminds me that Pottery Barn exists. <laughs> what is the demand for Pottery Barn? It's, it's uh, William Sonoma is an amazing company. It's done well, but I'm always surprised by the demand for uh, slightly too expensive home goods. Well, you're right, and that demand surprisingly is still fairly robust. But it also that Pottery Barn brand represents, I think, a real big driver for that B2B investment that they're making. So we'll see how that plays out. But that that should be a big player in that investment if it does work. Ripple effects from the slowdown in the video game industry could be felt this week in NVIDIA's latest earnings report. Third quarter profits for the graphics chip maker were light due to lower demand, and NVIDIA's guidance was a bit low, too, Emily. Yes, revenue did beat in the quarter, but as you mentioned, earnings came in worse than expected, and guidance for the remainder of the year was really muted. Revenue fell 17% year over year in the most recent quarter and 12% sequentially. And that really sounds dismal. I think if you don't know this business well and you're hearing about a 12% sequential decline in revenue, you're thinking, wow, that's a company that is really on the fritz. But this is actually very normal for NVIDIA, because their demand, as you mentioned, is driven largely by very cyclical industries, gaming being one. And uh, gaming revenue fell more than 50% year over year. They've had an amazing past couple of years, as the chip shortage and gaming demand has really increased demand for NVIDIA's GPUs. But moving forward, a lot of those investments have already been made, especially for their lower-end models and they're having a hard time moving inventory there now. But there's a silver lining. Um, data centers and automotive demand each grew um, one up more than 30%. Right, That's data centers and automotive up more than 80%. Those are smaller aspects of their business, but still massive opportunities. And we've seen this cyclicality in NVIDIA before. Whenever their GPUs were being used for crypto mining just a few years ago, there was a big boom and bust cycle with this company, but they still drove shareholder outperformance over the long term. So, same thing's happening here with gaming. 
I expect demand will come up if you're willing and to be a patient shareholder and hold what is, in my opinion, one of the best-in-class GPU process or manufacturers out there. The demand will come, even though it is a very cyclical industry. If the automotive division keeps growing at 80%, it's not going to be a small part of the business for very long. <laughs> no, and, and the thing to watch there is just make sure that NVIDIA's processors are being used for all of the most cutting-edge technology. And if you actually go through and read NVIDIA's earnings calls, uh, they'll talk about that a lot. All the places where their processors are being used. For instance, 72% of the top 500 supercomputers in the world use NVIDIA-powered systems, and that rises to 90% if you're considering just the newest supercomputers. So, a good sign that NVIDIA has the best technology. The demand cycle is just very cyclical. In a filing with the SEC, Berkshire Hathaway revealed it now owns more than 60 million shares of chipmaker Taiwan Semiconductor, and shares of TSM rose 12% after the news broke. It's nice to see the validation, Jason, but <laughs> as a Taiwan Semiconductor shareholder, uh, I'd feel even better if there was something materially stronger about the business. Well, I, I well, I, this is a materially very strong business, so I think you should feel very good about being a shareholder. Um, I, you could probably argue that this is one of those situations situations where uh, Buffett is being greedy, where others are fearful. I think Emily's Emily's uh, talk there on, on NVIDIA really, I think, highlighted a lot of the concerns in the space, the near-term concerns, but but also the long-term opportunities. And so, that you know, is where he's coming from here. Uh, listen, Taiwan Semiconductor, they own over 50% of the foundry market. The global foundry market is reliant. This business can't go away. Uh, this is a very Buffett-esque kind of business. And so, I think he sees an opportunity to, to play in, in a sort of a lower risk investment opportunity in what is a very big uh, opportunity going forward as the tailwinds start to turn for, for the chip industry. It's just a matter of, of being patient, which we know is, is one of his specialties. Restaurant Brands International is the parent company of Burger King, Tim Hortons, and Popeyes. Shares of the company up 10% this week on the news that former Domino's Pizza CEO Patrick Doyle will become the chairman of the Restaurant Brands board. Emily? Doyle turned around Domino's, so I suppose I understand the optimism. There's certainly optimism there. As you mentioned, Doyle is known for the great campaign over his eight-year tenure at Domino's, turning it from probably one of America's most hated pizza brand to a great performing <laughs> investment, in my opinion, delicious pizza. Um, what is encouraging to me about this is that his compensation is entirely in uh, QSR, that's Restaurant Brands International's stock. Um, there's a portion of which vests only depending upon the share price performance of QSR, as well as him putting $30 million of his own money into the, the company as well. So he's clearly invested alongside shareholders. But here's the thing Burger King, a little bit more complicated <laughs> than Domino's. I don't know if that turnaround comes as easily as his past experience may imply. Well, and isn't Popeyes the, the, the jewel of the crown in, in that business? Like, yeah. isn't that, I feel like whenever we talk about their earnings, it's like uh, Tim Hortons and Burger King are hanging out together wishing they were <laughs> as popular as Popeyes. Yeah, my fear is, is that he's going to mess up Popeyes, if I'm honest with you. Look, you can you can play with Tim Hortons, you can play around the Burger King. Do not touch Popeyes. <laughs> well, strong words. Jason Moser, Emily Flippin, we will see you later in the show. Up next, we're going to talk pets and pet retail, and yes, pet healthcare, with Chewy CEO Sumit Singh. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. You 
back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Earlier this week, my company, The Motley Fool, had its annual meeting. In addition to talking about investing, we also got the chance to hear from business leaders outside of our company, and one of them was Sumit Singh, the CEO of Chewy. Emily Flippin talked with Singh about why the company is expanding from pet products to pet healthcare and when it's okay to lose money on customer acquisition. I doubt there is a fool that is listening right now that isn't familiar with your business, either through our investing advice or as a customer themselves. But how would you describe Chewy for somebody who may not be familiar with the company? Hi, Emily. It's nice to be here. Hello to all the fools. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, so, Chewy obviously is a wonderful company. I'll describe it both from a point of view of team members as well as from point of view of customers. Uh, let's start with customers. So, uh, you know, we strive to be the most trusted, convenient destination uh, for our pet parents, but also for partners who service the pet community. Uh, and of course, today we're United States focused. In the future, we hope to be international as well. But the way you want to look at Chewy is, you know, we want to deliver personalized. Uh, or convenience and personalization at scale. So think about you know a trip to your local neighborhood store. Think about the best memories. Think about a trip to Disney. Kind of these these places that just bring you joy when you interact because it's personable, uh, it's emotive. You know the, the 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 person you're speaking with remembers your name or delivers an experience that just sticks with you and keeps bringing you back. That's sort of the mantra that we lead Chewy, and that's how we want our customers to perceive us. In terms of team members, you know we. Want to be? We're a happy place. Uh, you know, obviously, we we lots of people bring their pets, so pets also make us happy. But at the same time, you know, we're just trying to create a culture where everybody can be can be their best version of themselves, can bring their best version of themselves, can make us better. Uh, you know, uh, learn through through tremendous challenges, uh, robustly contribute, effectively innovate, um, and yeah, just uh, you know, stay in service of our customers. I tried to bring my cat for this interview, but he wasn't cooperating today, unfortunately. Um, but I do have to say, you know, the focus on the customer and the experience is really unique. But skeptics will say, you know, hey, there's Amazon, there's PetSmart, there's Petco. Uh, why does Chewy need to exist when I can get services from organizations that I may be already connected with or paying for? Uh, despite that, I mean, Chewy still has a dominant market share, growing numbers of loyal customers. So in your mind, what is it that makes Chewy so special? Yeah, you know, to answer that question, so first of all, you're exactly right. When you look at either, when you look at it in the e-commerce world and you say, hey, the basic, you know, tenets of e-commerce, whether it's competitive pricing, broad choices or selection, uh, convenience, post-purchase, you know, those are all, you can say, hey, there's a, there's, you know, there are neutralizing factors. You just have to be good at them, but then there's other people who can be good at them. So kind of what's the differentiator then? You know, when you look at pets particularly, pet is an emotive category. It is the only category outside of kids that we know of where, you know, customers refer to themselves as pet parents. And so when you just, if you take that sentence and run with it and you, and there's one more sentence, right? Just like it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to raise a pet. So there's this whole community out there that services pet. When you try to sort of put these two together in a in a in a way that is high bar, customer centric, personalized, memorable, uh, kind of magic happens, and that magic for us is in the way that customers sort of try us out, but then they love the experience and they just keep coming back for more, and that actually forms you know a big part of our business model, 
uh, and has fueled our growth, but also, you know, the operating fitness has fueled our profitability. So I would say that's what make, makes Chewy special. It's that concentric circle around the core that everybody else seems to want to deliver. So we deliver the core really well, but then we leave you with something, uh, you know, more and, and wanting more to come back to us every time that you shop with us. Yeah, my Rover cat sitter has a lot of pricing power over me. She could charge anything she wants, and I have that connection with her, right? My cat knows her, depends on her, so I think Chewy also has yeah. a little bit of that, that network effect going for it. But if it's yeah. not the Amazons I, and the Petcos of the world, I mean, what's the biggest threat to, Am to, to Chewy then? It's ourselves. It's, it's if we stop innovating on behalf of our customers, if we stop thinking about our customers in our everyday daily interaction, if we stop thinking about, you know, how do we bring the best value forward, deliver the best service in every interaction and find you more and more ways to keep coming back to us. I mean, ultimately, the culmination of what I've said is if we stopped innovating. So in that way, you know, the threat is much more internal uh, and I fundamentally believe that than it is external. So our speed of innovation and the longevity of care that we can demonstrate towards our customer will ultimately determine our long-term destiny and our success or failure. Uh, you know, I, and, and that's the mantra that we've led with. I mean, if you look at Chewy five years ago, you know, our, our fundamentals were like our, our disposition, our thinking towards customers was always robust. At the same time, there's been so much innovation that we've put on the platform the last couple of years that has just amplified not only the number of customers, but also the share of wallet or the, the amount that customers are spending with us. Uh, and, and that's fueled both growth and profitability. Yeah, I love that because when I first read through Chewy's S1, one of the things that stood out to me, that's your initial registration filing, was how deeply you understood the customer. You talked a lot about how, yeah. hey, we may lose money on customers when we first acquire them, but the ones that retain with us spend so much more money over the life cycle that we end up being really profitable on those customers. And it's interesting, The Motley Fool also kind of follows these, these similar customers' dynamics. Um, so what advice would you have for a company that does have that customer dynamic, right? Loses money maybe initially on acquisition, but makes it up in the long term. First of all, you should do my shareholder calls. Uh, that was very well articulated. Uh, <laughs> the advice that I would give, see, A, it pays to be long-term oriented. Uh, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of uh, companies, you know, they start out in this kind of insurgency mode in service of customers. But then when the pressures come, uh, you know, they immediately revert their kind of original mantra, which was growth and customer experience to perhaps short-term management of goals. I think that can be punitive to companies. So one, just always be long-term oriented. Uh, the second thing I would say is be customer oriented. Uh, you know, ultimately customer orientation, shareholder value creation, and team member orientation should all line uh, or line up behind a company's mission statement. So I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it for us, right? to be the most trusted and convenient destination for pet parents and partners everywhere. Each of our team members at Chewy can find themselves in this mission statement. You're either working to make the engine more trusted and convenient. You're either working to launch a new service or a new product or a new solution that makes us a destination for either our pet parents or the partners that service pet, or you're working on perhaps a future vertical such as, you know, taking us international. So, you know, it's, it's, and then of course, if we deliver this mission statement, what do we do? We create a ton of value for our shareholders. And so, you know, who won? All three 
all three parties won here. Customers won, shareholder won, and employees or team members won. So that would be the second kind of advice that I would provide. Um, and the third I would provide is uh, discipline, focus, and prioritization uh, are just uh, huge table stakes. They're very hard to maintain and achieve, uh, but focus and prioritization, I think, are key to achieving long-term success. Yeah. You're, you're speaking with the long-term mentality, which is very indicative of the way that we invest here at The Fool. But I have to say, there are a lot of organizations that talk about being customer-centric. And it's one of those easy things to say. We're like, oh, yeah, we're, we put our employees and our customers first. But what does that actually look like at Chewy in practice? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, you know, we, we, when, you, when you come into our customer service organization or customer care organization, uh, you know, we, even today, at a scale of thousands of customer service agents and professionals that we have, we don't have any automated voice lines. We don't have any, uh, uh, you know, we don't have metrics that measure productivity for an agent. Uh, and that's unheard of, particularly in orientations like customer service, which is typically perceived to be an OPEX heavy or a cost led, uh, you know, sort of an event. We, on the other hand, let our agents and our team members just be who they are, engage with the customer for as long as they want to, or as long as it takes to solve the customer's need state or challenges, or uh, just have a conversation if the customer is wanting to engage. And we do that a lot, by the way. Uh, or just take the moment to surprise and delight. And when you talk about surprise and delight, you know, we call these mechanisms, these vow mechanisms, which are basically, you know, unanticipated moments of celebration or joy or empathy that we create with our customers, where we will invest with local artists to create a portrait that we'll send to you. Uh, if sometimes, unfortunately, pets pass away, you know, we'll send you flowers. Uh, our return policies are most generous. You know, you can buy from us. If you don't like the food, we will ask to, we'll ask you to donate to, to a shelter or a local rescue. This is all, this all costs money. And, you know, at the same time to us, it's not the cost that we are after. It's the experience and the memory and the loyalty that it generates or garners, the network effect that it creates. You know, when a, when a hand-drawn portrait of your pet shows up on your doorstep, we have, we have you for life. You're going to talk about that with your friends at dinner. Uh, you're going to show it, show it to your office mates, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these are just very live examples of how we invest in customer experience, uh, you know, and put our money really where our mouth is. Uh, I, I think those, those yeah, that, that's kind of how I would lead that. You mentioned, you know, you do measure a lot of things. You know, it might not be that way. You might talk yep. in the abstract, but a lot of what Chewy's does is very measured. And one of the things that has yes. changed over the past year for your business, um, which you know surprised me happily as a shareholder, is you're getting into more pet health, right? Insurance, yes. telehealth offerings, e-commerce, uh, you know, Chewy compounds. Why is pet health care such an important growth area for Chewy right now? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so let's come at it from two sides. Uh, First of all, you're right. Pet healthcare is an important area, uh, and I, I believe it should be uh, more so in today's world than than ever in the past. Two reasons: one, pet healthcare is just a really large opportunity. So the TAM total available market size for pet health exceeds forty billion dollars, and it's growing at two times the rate uh, as a food and supplies, uh, you know, comparable uh, vertical might. Number two, when you come at it from customer in orientation, you know, we believe. Pet healthcare is has opportunities to to be more affordable as well as more accessible. 
you know, particularly when you double click that data point, you find that a third of, uh, you know, U.S. customers, uh, so about 100 million U.S. Uh, pet owning households, a third of them either do not take their pet to the vet or don't do so at a recurring frequency. Uh, and so, you know, there are these genuine, not only is the opportunity size large, there's also, you know, genuine friction and barriers that need to be addressed uh, that we can kind of put our mind towards innovating on behalf of our customers. Uh, and if we are able to unlock this, which, you know, we're very proud of the progress that the team is making because we continue to chip away and unlock, uh, you know, these opportunities, it creates tremendous you know, value creation for the platform, uh, as well as a great experience for our customers. Coming up after the break, Emily Flippin and Jason Moser are back with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Black and orange straight cats sitting on a fence. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here, once again, in studio with Jason Moser and Emily Flippin. Before we get to the radar stocks, one more news item from the world of wholesale retail. Costco is known for, among other things, its hot dog and soda combo, which sells for $1.50. That has been the price since Costco started selling the combo in 19. On Walmart's earnings call, CEO Doug McMillan shared a new pricing strategy for Sam's Club, which is Walmart's competitor to Costco. Now, the Sam's Club hot dog soda combo, Emily, is going to sell for, wait for it, $1.38. <laughs> I have no idea how they came up with that particular price, but clearly, they wanted to be able to say, we've got the best value deal at our wholesale club. Yes, even more confounding is that they said this is nearly a 10% decrease. Well, if you had just rounded it out to a 10% decrease, maybe that would have made more sense. $1.35, what are we doing here? No, but in all seriousness, this is it is funny. I mean, Costco and Sam's Club obviously go head to head. Sam's Club has been trying to undercut Costco for a number of years. I think their membership is around $10 cheaper than a Costco membership. But it does beg the question is, is there a premium for a Costco hot dog? We need somebody to go out there and, and quality test these two hot dogs to determine whether or not it's worth the extra 12 cents. And then email us, podcasts at fool.com. Please do a little boots on the ground research for us. Um, just to put some numbers around this, Jason, Costco has 119 million members. Sam's Club, less than half, 47 million. Maybe on some level, they think this is going to help boost that number. Well, Chris, I, I consulted regional Costco expert Matt Greer on sure. this matter earlier uh, to get his feedback. And there's there's several concerns here. I mean, first and foremost, the dollar thirty eight price just seems to be very odd. Who's got who's got a dollar thirty eight, right? <laughs> um, furthermore, though, it, it does seem like just a, a, a kind of a pathetic one upper. Right? right. I mean, we talk about the one upper. I can do it a little bit better. This is kind of Sam's Club kind of trying to be a little bit of a one upper. And, and Max suggests, you know what? He said Costco's going to buy all those dollar thirty eight dogs and drinks, and then they're going to sell them at their place for a dollar fifty and make money off the whole opportunity. I like, I like Max's enthusiasm there. 
I don't know that that's a, a great strategy to pursue. I understand. I could see someone doing that on their own. I said I like his enthusiasm, not the strategy, not the strategy. <laughs> All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Rick Engdahl, is going to hit you with a question. Emily Flippin, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? I'm looking at a company called Chart Industries. The ticker is GTLS, and it may be a company that listeners are less familiar with. This is an energy business. They supply machinery and other equipment, mainly for customers in the natural gas industry. So big oil companies tend to be some of their largest customers. But their management team, under their relatively new CEO, Jill Ivanko, has been making a lot of investments into greener and cleaner energy, including things like hydrogen and carbon capture. It's been on my radar for a while because I like the business. Um, and acquisitions to this point have been relatively small, tuck in acquisitions. But the reason why it's on my radar this week is uh, earlier last week, they announced a $4.4 billion acquisition of a company called Halden. It effectively doubles the size of Chart's business. It has an attractive service based business model, which should remove some of that cyclicality that Chart experiences. But the stock is down nearly 50% since this announcement because it saddles the company with a lot of debt. But I do think that if they're able to reach the profitability goals that they have laid out as part of this acquisition, it could be a really interesting buying opportunity. Boy, sometimes Wall Street sends a very clear signal that they don't like the acquisition <laughs> you just yeah, made. Yeah, $4 billion of debt in a rising interest rate environment is certainly enough to scare some investors. Rick, question about chart industries? Uh, Emily, you buried the lead because I looked at the website and the first big word I saw was cryogenics. <laughs> Apparently, this company is into freezing people, I assume, right? Do they still do the whole body or is it just the heads in jars like on Futurama? What is it? Oh, it's just the heads. And for $100,000, Rick, no, I'm joking. Uh, no, they, <laughs> cryogenics are used to freeze LNG, so to transform gas from its gaseous state to something that can be more easily transported. Um, so they keep gas really, really, really cold cryogenics. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week? Uh, yeah, keeping an eye on Zoom video communications, ticker ZM. They've got earnings coming out on Monday, the 21st, after the market closes. Um, obviously, been a very tough year for this uh, company. Shares down 55%. A lot of that has to do, you know, last quarter they reported just 8% top line growth. Um, they continue to add customers, they continue to diversify their suite of offerings with things like Zoom Rooms and Zoom Phone. But again, I mean, guiding for full year growth of just under 7%. You gotta really kind of wonder what the future holds as things start to reopen. It's a good business, strong balance sheet, got around five five and a half billion dollars in cash and virtually no debt, profitable, cash flow positive, but growth is the big question here. So keeping an eye on that on that guidance going forward and, and uh, you know kind of where they want to take this business. Rick, question about Zoom video. Back in 2020, we all adopted Zoom because they made video chat better. Now that we've all lived with it for a couple of years, do you think that Zoom can make video chat better? <laughs> better than better? Uh, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And I'll tell you, I mean, just a little bit, a little bit of insight for today. I mean, you know, we've got a lot of people here at HQ today. We've got our annual meeting going on on Friday, and it's just, it's been wonderful to see so many people here face to face. It, it kind of makes you realize I, I, I need another Zoom call, like I need another hole in the head, man. <laughs> I mean, it's it's wonderful technology, but you know, I, it's nice to work face to face with people too. They're gonna have to kind of figure out a way to walk that line because I, I do feel like we're gonna see this trend of getting back to working in person a little bit more as time goes on. I mean, it's it's not gonna fully change, right? I think hybrid is the way to go, uh, but but that really does kind of make you wonder what exactly is gonna you know, what is Zoom gonna do going forward. What do you want to add to your watch list? Not Zoom. <laughs> 
<laughs> Emily Flip and Jason Moser, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money Radio Show. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 